Well, good morning and welcome everybody again to Encounter. We're on part two of our series, All the Wrong Places. And uh, what this series is about, these uh, Dr. Seuss vibes are all about, is recognizing uh, from that little graduation book that a lot of us got in graduating something, oh, the places that you'll go, and what Grandma didn't write in her little note that she tucked into the inside cover of that book, is that some of the places that you're going to pursue happiness and wholeness, uh, pursue hope, are going to inevitably be the wrong places. And so what we're doing is trying to identify some of those wrong places, places that we could very, very easily spend our whole lives climbing to the top of a ladder only to realize at the very end of our lives that the ladder was in fact leaning against the wrong building the entire time. And so we don't want that from you. I don't want that for you. So we're going to name those things and say, hey, this is the wrong place and some of the right places along the way as well. Last week was fame. Don't pursue fame. Don't chase fame. Not big fame, Instagram famous influencer. Not even tiny fame, like needing to have the credit for every single time you empty the dishwasher. I'm looking at some of you, right? Like, I just, I need that recognition. I need that fame. God didn't call you to be famous. He called you to be faithful. Now, uh, next week, we're going to continue this series, and we're talking about that elusive pursuit of perfection Today is my favorite, though, because today we're talking about the wrong place of finding happiness and wholeness in money and in stuff. And I recognize that I say it's one of my favorite things to talk about, especially in this series. Uh, Some of you are a little bit anxious. Like, I can see some of you are, like, reaching for your wallet and, like, hang on to that thing. You're not getting this in church, right? Or clutching onto your purse. I mean, I recognize it, and I hope hope that uh, some of your anxiety can be cast off, can be let go. It's not totally where we're going this morning. I want to help you uh, get a little bit more comfortable uh, with talking about kind of a kind of a touchy subject. So we're going to play a little game along the way here. And the game's not going to be anything weird. You're not going to come forward. Just going to ask for a little hand raise along the way here. Uh, the game is going to start off uh, with a with a question. So everybody's invited to participate. Fulton Heights, wherever you're watching from online, love for you guys to raise your hand as well. Um, we all know and we've all heard a million and one times that money doesn't buy happiness. But how many of us would still like to give it a shot anyway, right? Like, how many of us, raise your hand if you want to be rich. That's okay. You're a little reluctant, but, like, it's church, so we got to be truthful. And there's a part of it, I know, money doesn't buy happiness, but I'd kind of like to give it a shot. Now, next question. How many of you believe that where you are right now in life, you are rich? Put your hands up. There's a couple of you who kind of know where this is going, right? Like, But let the record reflect, there were far fewer of us who raised our hand for for that one. Just kind of identifying a little bit where we are. We all identified, hey, listen, most of us, we're not not that rich, but we raised our hand for the first question. We'd like to give it a shot, right? We're like on this track or we're on this treadmill of getting rich. We'd like to give it a shot. This message is for all of us. We're not there, but we'd like to give it a shot. A shot. The problem with being rich is that it's a very, very slippery, a very elusive goal to track. Uh, in fact, this little information comes from a Gallup survey a couple of years back that uh, just asked people, um, what does it take for you to be considered rich? And uh, what they found is that your number of what it takes to become rich is deeply tied to however much money you have currently. So they found, for example, that somebody who makes $30,000 a year, what it takes for that person to be considered rich is 
$74,000 on average. Some of you are in that neck of the woods and you're going, yeah, a uh, problem though. I don't feel rich. And they found, oh, that's probably true. If you make a household income of $50,000, then what it takes for you to feel rich is $100,000. You can kind of see where this thing is going. And so they went all the way to the other extreme, the high income earners, uh, and said, hey, listen, uh, those of you making deep into the six figures annually, how much does it take for you to be considered rich? And what they came up with is an average answer of a net worth of $5 million. Which means there is somebody who worked his whole life, her whole life, and has accumulated and has saved a little nest egg or a little something, and they hit their number, their goal, their target of like $2 million. And by the time they got there, the line moved, shifted downfield, the goalpost moved. Whatever it was, it just, it moved, it slipped away. Now $2 million becomes $5 million and so forth. The line moves on us. It's that slippery. You guys have probably even experienced this in life where you got a job and you thought it was more money than you ever thought you would make before. And then you saw a new job and you're like, that would be. And every time you took that job, it's like a treadmill. It just kind of stayed on and the line, the goalposts just kept moving. This happened to me. When I, was, uh, when I was closing out my, my ministry learning program, when I was graduating from cemetery, I'm sorry, seminary, <laughs> I, was on the, I was on the cusp of having like a job for the very first time. Like they're going to pay me money to like lead a church. And there was one church, um, I still remember, it was in northern Michigan. I visited, it went really well. And they got back to me and they said, hey, listen, not a big church, but like we were, we we're interested in calling you and hiring you on uh, to be our next lead pastor and they introduced me to a term that I was only vaguely familiar with and it was called a compensation package and in that compensation package was a salary amount and you guys it had a comma in it right that was new to me I was like making minimum wage for most of my life up until that point and the idea that somebody would pay me a salary with a comma in it was more money than I could have ever imagined up till that point problem the problem, though, was that I didn't feel particularly called to that church, and I didn't want to live in northern Michigan. Great place to vacation to, not knocking it, but I didn't want to live there. The problem was, is that when we said no to that, my wife and I, we both knew that what we'd be saying yes to is to start a church in our living room called Encounter Church. And it was tough saying that, saying no. Well, then fast forward 10 years, about 11, 12 years maybe now, and now Encounter is that like established church. And now my wife, she went on, she has her career as well. And so two income, and I don't, I don't remember honestly what the exact number was back then, but I got a feeling that we passed it somewhere along the line. And so old Dirk would have looked at new Dirk and said, current Dirk and said, man, you got, you're rich. I don't feel rich. And some of you are in that same place. I don't feel rich because the goal line moved. I'll tell you how much the goal line can possibly move. True story, his name is Rajat Gupta. He was born uh, to a very, very solidly middle-class family in Calcutta, India, a family that valued education. Uh, Rajat was born into this family. Things were going well. He was good at school. That was a value for the family. It made him do well. Up until when he was a teenager, his dad suddenly passes away. Two years later, he's still a teenager. His mom passes away, gets sick. He's now a teenager, the oldest of three, in India as an orphan. 
Though he valued education, he was good at it. He takes his university entrance exams and he scores in the top 15 of the nation. And there's a lot of people in India. He enters, uh, he enters university, he graduates business school, he immigrates to the States. He's good at what he does, like really, really good. In his mid-40s, he's the CEO of the very prestigious McKinsey Group. It's a business consulting group. He's making more money than any of his peers. He's hailed as one of the most successful business people alive today. The year is 2008. He has an estimated net worth exceeding $100 million. But... But his friends knew that wasn't his number. It may have been his number, but the goal line moved along the way. And even though he's a centimillionaire, that wasn't always the goal. The goal wasn't $100 million. The goal was now a billion dollars. And he would do whatever it takes to get there. I am telling you, that goal line is so slippery and so easily moved. It could move so far that we ever even dreamed of. And that's where Jesus meets us this morning. And he goes, I want to help you with that. I want to help you get off from that treadmill. I want to help you to stop climbing that ladder. Because there's always going to be another rung. And you'll you'll never get there. It'll just move every single time. I want better for you than that. Some of us, we've heard this definition of greed. Of like greed is like having a lot of stuff. No, no, no. God says greed isn't having a lot of stuff. Greed is having your stuff have you. God is okay with you having nice things. He just doesn't want the nice things to have you, to own you. And so Jesus masterfully has this interaction with this young guy who's kind of a lot like us to help us get off that treadmill, to help us stop chasing that particular carrot, to help us avoid attempting to find our hope and our happiness and our wholeness in all the wrong place, especially the place of money and stuff. Because the goal line keeps on moving. If you'd like to follow along, we're going to go to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, we're phone friendly so you can follow along on a device. Also, the word's going to be on the screen. Luke 18, it starts off this way. Is that a certain ruler, Mark, another eyewitness to the story, when he tells it, it's a, it's a rich young ruler, uh, but this guy, a certain ruler, rich young one, asked Jesus, he goes, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And there's a couple things at play here. First of all, when he says good teacher, it's kind of this uh, widely accepted uh, linguistic system where he offers a compliment to Jesus, good teacher. And Jesus is expected to offer a compliment to him in return. And then he says, thank you, and then offers a compliment to Jesus. And Jesus offers this other compliment, and they kind of go back and forth. It's very Midwestern, the ancient ancient Middle East. Uh, Now, hang on to that one, because Jesus is going to to break the norm. But I also want to see this story through the perspective of the disciples, like through the perspective of all of us just kind of watching in. And the disciples are seeing this rich young ruler and going, finally, somebody to bankroll this nonprofit, right? Like this whole thing has been funded off from the generosity of others for a long, long time now. And this guy comes along. Finally, we can like get upgraded from fish sticks and breadcrumbs to steak and potatoes, we're there. We, we heard a little bit earlier, Luke uh, 8, uh, 10 chapters previous, this whole thing was funded by some prominent women that were following along in the Jesus movement. These guys are going, okay, our ship is arriving here. 
expected to abide by the linguistic system of offering him a compliment in return. We read on what Jesus really does in verse 19. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, and they're all like, oh, Jesus, you did it again. You're blowing it. Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Shutting down the conversation. You know what the disciples are thinking? The disciples are thinking, you've got to be kidding me. Jesus, did you miss donor management class in Messiah school? This is not how you interact with people. We continue on. Jesus just digs the whole situation much deeper. Verse 20. You know the commandments. He's still talking to the guy. You know the commandments. You shall not, he offers a list here, five things. Commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not commit, uh, give false testimony. And honor your father and your mother. Uh, five commandments. If I'm honest, the five commandments feel like the kind of low-hanging ones. Like the easily, uh, easily achievable ones. He's like, uh, you, you know the commandments, don't murder. And the guy's like, check that off the list. You know, did it, didn't do it. I'm, I'm great. The thing is, for me, like reading the story, Jesus could have chosen one of the many other commandments. In Jesus' day, in the, first, uh, in the first century, Jewish people had 613 different specific commandments that they were supposed to follow at all times. There was probably one of those that Jesus could have picked to say like, hey, miss, listen, man, you think you're so good? What about, some of the, what about this one? What about the fact that we count the number of steps that we're allowed to take on the Sabbath day and one step more is considered work? Have you, have you always abided by that one? What about the commitment that you're not supposed to spit on the Sabbath day? Because if you spit, you might accidentally water a plant. That's farming and irrigation. Did you follow that one your whole life? Jesus could have picked any one of these, but he doesn't. He picks, he picks these five, the kind of low-hanging runs. Why? I think Jesus is making a point, but to get us there, we have to realize that the commandments were not split up uh, like five and five numerically on stone tablets. When Moses like, brings them down from the mountain and God carves uh, the, the, the commandments into the stone, um, typically we think of them like, well, I don't know, there's ten, so divide that by two, five and five. Uh, traditionally, there's not like evidence for this, but historically, traditionally, the way they thought about the commandments wasn't five and five, it was four and six. The first four of the commandments were kind of vertical commandments. Uh, there were commandments like, you shall have no other gods before me. Don't make any idols in the shape of God. Don't misuse the name of the Lord your God. Honor God's day, the Sabbath day, by keeping it holy. They're vertical commandments. First four. The second six are more of the horizontal commandments. How we treat one another. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Right? Don't steal horizontally. When Jesus is asked which is the greatest commandments, it's not surprising that Jesus summarized them by saying, vertical, love God and love your neighbor, horizontally. That's how the commandments were naturally thought of as they split up together. We will notice that Jesus took that second tablet and listed off five of them. And he forgot one. Except I don't think Jesus forgot to name that one. I think Jesus is a little bit more clever than that. I think he's a little sharper than that. I would really recommend you give your life to Jesus because he's, he's really smart and clever. Uh, I think he intentionally leaves one off. Uh, Thou shalt not covet, number 10. Or if you heard the message version of the Bible, don't lust, 
after stuff. Don't, don't long for, don't, don't pine after the creation rather than the creator. Created things rather than the one who made it all. Jesus builds on this one. As the man responds in verse 21, low-hanging fruit, five of those six, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. He may have. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. He says, sell everything you have. Mark says, go and sell everything that you have. Give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. I'm sorry, Jesus. One thing? There's one thing that you lack? I'm like reading the story here and I'm like, it's not one thing, Jesus. It's go, sell, give, come and follow. It's like five things. It's not one thing, Jesus. I mean, after all, Jesus, when you called your other disciples, there's like Peter and Andrew in the boat. You go up to those guys and they're fishing. And it's like, follow me. And they leave their nets and they followed him. Jesus goes up to James and John. Same story, different people. Hey, leave your nets, follow me. They left their nets, they followed him. Jesus goes to Matthew in the tax collector booth. Hey, follow me. He leaves his booth, he follows Jesus. Now when Jesus meets this guy, this young rich guy, he goes, okay, one thing, follow me is five things. Go, sell, give, come and follow me. In the words of every toddler everywhere, that's not fair. It's supposed to be one thing. I think Jesus is going, yeah, it's one thing. It's that 10th commandment. It's that sixth commandment on the second tablet. Jesus, as the great spiritual physician is making this diagnosis he's he's also offering his prescription his remedy i'm saying like listen man sure you you've kept all of these but it's like this one thing that you lack you're still like pining after longing after the created things rather than the creator like, like you're still coveting man and, and i'll tell you i'll tell you if you could go sell give come and follow if you could do those things Man, you won't just show me, Jesus. You won't just show the rest of the disciple. You'll show yourself who and whose you really are. So go sell, give, come and follow, man. And how it sits with him is a lot like how it sits with the rest of us. Verse 23, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. And Jesus looked at him and he said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for somebody who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. I love this little line, uh, easier for a camel to go through like the little, little hole in the back end of a needle than it is for a rich guy to enter the kingdom of God. I love that line, um, it's been represented a lot, uh, especially in, in Bible teaching and messages. Oftentimes, uh, people talk about it 
and this goes back for hundreds of years, even since the time of Shakespeare, that there was a gate, a city fortifications, there was an opening in that gate, and that for a, a camel or mule or, or something, some kind of animal, cargo vessel, to get through, the animal would have to like shake off all of its, uh, all of its stuff, all of its cargo, like, like leave that outside, so it kind of slips through, kind of naked, coming into the gates, right? As it came into this world, naked it'll leave it, and there's this cool metaphor over like shaking everything off that, that entangles and snares us as we enter into the, into the kingdom of heaven and listen man like that sermon like basically preaches itself there's a problem with that though is like personally i have not come across any like archaeological evidence that would support that there was such a gate also i kind of believe in reading the scripture that the simplest explanation is usually probably the best one i think jesus is going like you guys have seen a, a camel <laughs> I couldn't find a camel to bring up onto stage this morning, but, you know, got a needle. No, I don't have a needle. I didn't bring it with me. It's so small, you wouldn't be able to see it. That's the point, right? Like, he's, Jesus is, like, uh, using this hyperbole. Going, like, listen, like, it'd be easier to drive an F-350 through a card swipe device than it would be for a rich guy to get into heaven. It's not hard. It's impossible. It just doesn't happen. It's not hard. It's impossible for a rich guy to get into heaven. Question, Jesus. <laughs> the disciples and those hearing this in verse 23 ask the same, same verse 26, ask the same question that you and I are asking. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus answers that with the most profound answer, the most gospel-centered answer that we could have ever imagined. Jesus replied in verse 27, what is impossible with man is possible with God. That is the gospel message. That is truth, right? We don't need to make up like reasons of how that camel could slip through a, a needle's eye. We just got to own this whole thing is impossible. Redemption is impossible. Grace and forgiveness and a new life on the far side is impossible outside of the power of God. What's impossible with people is possible with God. And God goes, like, listen, it's not just hard. It's not just like work harder, clean yourself up, shake off a few nasty habits, do better next time, keep all the commandments instead of most of the commandments and you'll get there. No, no, it's not just hard. It's impossible. And Jesus goes, God goes, yes, that's why I have stepped into your shoes. I have accomplished for you the impossible. I have done for you what you could not do on your own. I have stepped into this world. I put my, your shoes on. I've wrapped myself in skin. Godhead and humanity and carried all that shame and guilt and fear. And I brought it down into the grave and I buried it there. And I'm raising you up into new life. Listen, this story isn't hard. It's impossible. And with God, anything is possible. Application time. Uh, landing it on, on us today. I want to ask a non-rhetorical question. I'm mean, actually answering Asking for a response here. Uh, yeah, like a good news, bad news situation. Which Good news, bad news, which, which what do they want to hear first? Bad. bad news. 
You guys really doubled down pretty hard on bad news. First service did it too. In my notes, I have good news written first, so that's what you're going to get. I was hoping it would work this time. Uh, I got two pieces of news, good news and bad news. We're going to start with the good news. The good news today is that you're rich. I'm rich. Like, this is good news. Let's not back away from it. Let's, like, not deny it. A global perspective, and come on, you, you've probably heard this before. Global perspective, three billion people on this planet live on, like, two dollars or less a day. We're rich. We're doing pretty good, globally speaking. I mean, that's, we have far more than that. It's like $700 a year. We have more than that. Uh, you know that you're rich. I know that I'm rich because of the rich problems that I have. It really betrays me when I, like, complain about something that happened, and then I take a step back to, like, realize what I'm talking about. Okay, you don't have to raise your hands because I know you're in the same boat. The kind of things that I complain about is like, man, Amazon, right? They promised it in two days and it took three. Garbage, you know? DoorDash. I ordered my food. I didn't have to kill it, prepare it, clean it, serve it up, or clean it up afterwards. But they forgot my dipping sauce. How could they? Come on, right? We could go on and on. They forgot my AirPods, and I got to, like, hold my phone up to my ear like a Neanderthal. Like, give me a break. (laughs) These are rich people problems. We're rich. And it's good news. I think we should just own it, right? Because we do this thing in the Midwest that they probably did, too. I, I can't prove that, but I'm just speculating a little bit. Of, like, when somebody offers you a gift, right? We have this nasty habit of saying things like, oh, you shouldn't have. And as a gift giver, you don't want to hear, I shouldn't have. You want to hear, thank you. I think as a God, as a gift giver, he doesn't want to hear, you shouldn't have, or even worse, you didn't. I think he wants to hear, thank you. Like he's gifting us like, like more wealth than humanity has ever seen before. And he doesn't want to hear, yeah, God, but you didn't really give that to me. I mean, I'm not rich compared to Rajat Gupta, right? And God is going, no, 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 don't, don't say that I didn't. Own it. And simply say thank you. So let's do that, right? Like, I'm going to ask you to say those two very uncomfortable words. I'm rich. Because we are, globally speaking, and we have to own it before God. I think it honors him just to acknowledge he has wildly blessed us. So count three, I'm rich. One, two, three. I'm rich. Awesome. We are. It's a little uncomfortable, though, right? We'll grow into it. Uh, Good news is you're rich. The bad news, you're rich. I'm rich. You probably saw that one coming. Because along with that wealth that humanity has never seen up to this time, it also comes with that a spiritual danger that the world has never seen before. The spiritual danger of that prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, the Lord's Prayer, and there's a line in the middle of it that goes, Lord, give me today my daily bread. And it's like, we have not prayed that prayer in earnest. Like, like we have, the pantry is full of bread, full of food. Like, that's, for most of us, never been the issue. We have never had to pray that and actually literally mean it like they did then. There's a spiritual danger, spiritual threat that comes along with that. Is that the problems that we face today, 
Historically speaking, humanity is not equipped to face on our own. There's an onslaught of options and opportunities that our wealth can get us. Never before have we been faced with such a temptation to put our, put our hope and put our help and, and put our wholeness into a new phone or new shoes or new purse or new house or new vacation or new furniture or new countertops. We've never had this before in our life. And so we're being threatened, we're being like pulled aside and, and people are like tugging us this way and that constantly. And there's a bigger threat than we've ever had before. Good news is that you're rich. The bad news is that you're rich. The bad news too is that some of us have been climbing that ladder and we have believed the onslaught of lies that have been cast to us that like, okay, but you're here, but if only, if only we could get there, if only we could do this. If it's 30,000, it's 74,000. If it's 100,000, it's 300,000. If only there's one more rung. If only you could reach onto that one. And we spend like we're reaching onto that one. And then we fall under what a lot of people call the curse of money. It is a curse trying to grab onto that ring, especially when you're not there yet. And you get upside down and underwater. And the debt collectors are calling. And the card balances are climbing. And it doesn't feel like a blessing anymore. It feels like a curse, even though, historically speaking, you're rich. But you know. You know the end of wealth because you've seen it before. You know that money isn't going to bring your kid back, isn't going to straighten him out. Oftentimes, throwing money on that particular problem just makes it worse, not better. You know that that money isn't going to solve an addiction. You know that more money is just going to fuel it. You know that money isn't going to climb out of the deep hole of depression that you've been struggling in or, or finally solve all the anxiety that your mind has been plagued by. You know about the end. And so that's why I tell you what you already know is that we don't need more of the temporary church. We need more of the eternal. We need more Jesus. We need more of what lasts and what matters that's what, that's what I wish that Rajat could have figured out. And 2008 was a huge year. It was the year that he was called a centimillionaire with a hundred million dollar net worth. It was also the year that he was sitting on the board of Goldman Sachs, a very prestigious investment company. 2008 was also the year that the world nosedived into one of the biggest recessions of most people's lives. Some of you remember it. What was so particularly scary about it is that it didn't look like there was any end in sight. He's on a banking call with the board. And he has just learned that Warren Buffett, the richest guy in the world at the time, was going to make a $5 billion investment into Goldman Sachs to float them along, keeping the banking industry solvent. He was only a handful of people on the planet who had access to that information. He hung up the call, and it took him 16 seconds to call his hedge fund manager to place an order. Because he knew when that news would be made public, it was money to be made. His friend placed an order for him in the amount of 175,000 shares of Goldman Sachs. Hours later, when the news was made public, the stock indeed rose. And in those few hours, he made well over a million dollars. This, of course, is very illegal, a felony 
of insider trading, it's also remarkably easy to trace. The information, the phone call, the purchase. What strikes me about this is the shifting goalpost and the hell that that leads to in somebody's life. You could be a teenage orphan in Calcutta to climb the ranks to be called one of the most successful business people alive. Down to prisoner number 71892. That's the story. Church, don't put your hope in that. Don't put your hope in a goalpost that just keeps on shifting. We don't need more of what's temporary. We need more of what's eternal. It's not that God doesn't want you to have nice things. It's that God doesn't want your nice things to have you. So what do we do? I got one thing. Go, sell, give, come, and follow. Seriously, that's what we're doing. I think that many of us suffer from the same ailment that this rich young ruler suffers from that talked to Jesus. And I don't know why the prescription would be any different. Go, sell, give, come, and follow. I think he's talking to me. I think he's talking to you guys. I think that's what's in front of us today, that we're going to go, sell, give, come, and follow, that we're going to find someone who needs some help, and we're going to help. We're going to pay somebody's bill anonymously because that's what Jesus has done for us, has asked us to do. We're going to grab a box and help somebody move. We're going to help somebody out. Guys, there's an entire country that could be helped out. A people, millions of people who are currently displaced in Ukraine. And as the followers of Jesus, we go, sell, give, come, and follow him. And there's a million different organizations that we could help. And I'm not in the business of recommending or sorting through all of that. I'm in the business of relaying to you what Jesus told to me, which is go, sell, give, come, and follow. Because Jesus knows it's eternal. We don't need more of what's temporary. We need more of what's eternal. And if it sounds like a lot, I mean, don't get me wrong. It is a lot. He's asking for more than like some money. He's asking for more than like reevaluating how you use all of your money. He is, he's asking for your whole self. He's asking for my whole self to follow him, to, to give towards him. He's asking for a lot. But here's the thing. God says, it's a lot. But I'm going to go first. God loved So God gave his one and only son, Jesus. If you ever think that you could outgive God, he goes, I gave my son, Jesus. I gave myself on the cross. Go sell, give, come and follow. It's not temporary. It's better than that. It's eternal. So church, it's your move. I invite you to stand up as we go to that God in prayer. And as we do, I'd like to just lead you in a, in a little litany, in a little back and forth here, where I'm going I'm to say a line, and I'm going to invite you to respond to it and kind of do this back and forth a couple of times. I think, think it's so powerful um, 
as we head into our weeks to be reminded of where our hope really, truly comes from. So let's bow our heads, let's close our eyes. And uh, if you feel comfortable, let's repeat after me as loud as you can. Let's start off. God has blessed me with more than I need. God has blessed me with more than I need. I'm rich. But I will not trust my riches. But in him who richly provides. Because I have more. I will give more and do more. Jesus, we give, we do, we offer all of this not because it somehow earns anything from you, a score, a merit from you. Lord, it's not hard. That's impossible. God, we do all of this simply out of the sheer gratitude for what we have of how much you gave to us. God, you ask for a lot, but you didn't hold back. And you went first. You gave us your son, Jesus. And you are more than enough. Amen. Hey, church. It's our sincere prayer that this message was able to help you find new life in Christ. And if you did find it helpful, would you consider donating to help drive this ministry forward? And don't forget, there's no substitute for doing life together. So find a worship experience Join a small group or a serving team today. You can do all this at EncounterChurch.org.